tēnā koutou katoa, uh, ko te mihi tuatahi ki te atua, uh, kororea ki te atua, matua i te rangi tēnā koe, uh, ihukaraiti tēnā koe, wairua tapu tēnā koe. Uh, ko tēnei te mihi ki te mana whenua tēnā koutou, uh, ko te whare karekia e tū nei uh, tēnā koe. Uh, tēnā koutou katoa e mihi uh, kia mātou e tēnei wā. Uh, no engarani rawa uh, ko te mana, uh, oku tupuna, ko Ngāte Pākia toko iwi, uh, ko te tiriti o Waitangi toko tūranga waiwai, um, ko Mangere Baptist Church toku whare karekia, no Andrew Ahau, no reira, uh, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Good morning and uh, greetings to all of you, um, acknowledgement to, to God, Father, Son and Spirit, and um, an acknowledgement to this place and to your welcome. So, I'm Andrew. Let's, um, let's turn once again to Holy Scripture. If you have your Bible, why don't you get out Ephesians 3? Um, and after that, we'll be turning to, to 1 Peter 2 as well. And I just want to read a section from, from these. So Ephesians 3, verse 10. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known, made known, to rulers and authorities in heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he has accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're also going to turn to 1 Peter. It's a good little test of your uh, skills, of where you know, where you know, to, where you know to turn. 1 Peter 2, um, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Me inoitato. Let's pray. Loving God, may these words that were spoken to the early church in these letters speak afresh to us today. By the power of your Spirit and in company with Jesus, our Lord. Amen. God's wisdom. That's our theme for this morning. And we're going to start with a few stories. So, here we go. A group of mostly working-class people gather for worship in a shabby hall in mid-16th century England. As a separatist congregation, Baptists they were becoming to be known as, their faith had been declared illegal by the state church of the day, as they didn't want to join what they saw as a compromised faith community. And so the problem that they faced was that their leaders, their pastors and ministers, were kept on getting arrested and taken away for illegally preaching and holding these gatherings. So they devised a plan. Towards the center of their makeshift sanctuary, there was a large curtain separating an inner part of the room from the outer part of the room. And what they did was that if you were a regular member, you were allowed behind the curtain in the center where you would hear the preaching and, and pray together and sing songs. But if you were a visitor, potentially a spy from the authorities, you would be outside the curtain. What would happen is that if someone was coming, if they were being arrested or, or there were authorities rushing in, 
the quickly the person preaching would have the chance to sit down amidst the people within the curtain, the curtain would drop, and they wouldn't know who to arrest. Right? Pretty clever. Um, thus, the police would have to either arrest them all or, or sort of go on their way a little bit defeated. This fledgling rudent had committed to a costly way of life determined by a membership covenant, a commitment they had made to each other. This, one of these covenants said this, that we members together commit to walk in all the Lord's ways, those made known and yet to be made known, whatever it should cost them, the Lord assisting. God's wisdom made manifold in the church. In the minutes of the Church Missionary Society at the turn of the 19th century, the Reverend Samuel Marsden wrote to discuss a mission to a newly discovered, strange to them, land. He wrote the recommendation, this is from, from those minutes. It must be a requisite to state that the New Zealanders, talking about Māori, have derived no advantage hitherto from the commerce or arts of civilization, and must therefore be in heathen darkness and ignorance. Nothing, in my opinion, can pave the way for the introduction of the gospel but civilization. Having been approved for mission, traveling near Sydney and Parramatta alongside the industrious Ngāpui leader Ruatara, Martin reflected on what he described as the first Sabbath day in New Zealand. He said, on Sunday morning when I was on the deck, I saw an English flag flying, and it was a pleasing sight in New Zealand. I considered it the dawn of civilization, liberty, religion in that dark and benighted land. Church, civilization, colonization, all wrapped up in one, it seems. God's wisdom displayed in the church. On a rainy Sunday afternoon in South Auckland, a small group of people gather to set up some sound gear, some musical instruments, a table of food set with grape juice and bread. Gluten-free option just on the side. The rather shabby Cinderblock auditorium fills up with 20 or so people who sing mostly in tune, open the Bible and break bread together, followed by a cup of tea. God's wisdom made manifold in the church. Two disciples walk along a road close to despair. They had been following a rabbi that they believed to be the Messiah, the coming king of Israel sent by God. But this rabbi, their teacher and friend, has been crucified. And now his body was missing. Along the road, they are joined by a strange figure. This person did not seem to have heard the news that was circulating around Jerusalem about this prophet's death. Instead, he started to read from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and explained marvelous things to these disciples as their hearts burned within them. As they got to the end of the journey, they invited the stranger in, they broke bread, and in the act of hospitality, they realized it was Jesus, it was their rabbi, alive, just as they thought they understood, he vanished, and they rushed out to share with the others what had happened. God's wisdom made manifold in the church. The church is one of the strangest things, I think, to talk about within our faith. It's one of the few things that we can say and should say a lot about in abstract terms, you know. 
We can describe the church as a body, as a temple, as a humanity, a new humanity. But the church is also something very visible, something historical, something tangible, something that seems, at least from first appearance, that we can see and describe. These four stories that we just heard, connected but desperate, hopeful as well as horrifying, all describe this strange picture of what we might call the church of Jesus. And so the next three weeks, we want to talk about this strange thing called the church and specifically look at what it means to be the church together. We're going to dig into this topic together. And I was going to give a warning that it would be interactive, but I'm, I'm really pleased to see that there's plenty of interaction already. So um, that's going to be great. Looking forward to digging in. So our passage from Ephesians this morning makes an astonishing claim. One that, if I'm honest, I find pretty difficult to believe most of the time. The church, Paul writes, is a locus of God's wisdom. In other words, the church is a community which displays God's wisdom in Jesus Christ to all of the world. And not just the world, but the text talks about these rulers and authorities and heavenly realms, as if the very cosmos looks at the church, this pretty mundane, ordinary group of people, and thinks, wow, how wise is God? Well, friends, if the church is God's wisdom displayed to all the universe, then we must confess we are unwise. The church is positively crawling with people who don't deserve to be here, writes Rachel Held Evans, starting with me. If the church is God's wisdom displayed to the world, then we must declare we are unwise. For God's wisdom is revealed in Jesus, a wisdom which goes to the cross. The church here, uh, the word here for manifold um, is polypoikleos. You recognize maybe that word poly to mean many, like uh, polyphony, many maladies, or polyglot, someone who speaks many languages. The church, therefore, can be spoken of as God's vibrant, multicolored, variegated wisdom on display to the cosmos, visible to the rulers and authorities, even in heavenly realms. And so we need to learn to take this sense of display as a people together, this visibility very seriously. For what St. Paul teaches is that our life together is on display as God's wisdom. Our second reading speaks of this visible community of the church as a new constitution of God's purposes, something God has done to draw together a people for God's self in Jesus Christ. Peter declares that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And any faithful Hebrew reading this passage would know that Peter's been quoting from Exodus here, a time when God called Israel out of slavery and made a covenant with them. Exodus 19 reads, If you obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, Israel, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's people are those who have been ripped from the dominion of death, torn from darkness, from the evil realms into new life 
And Christ's very body, a cornerstone, Peter calls it, it makes up a house built by God for God. We see that just as God covenants with Israel, Peter witnesses that God has made a new covenant in Jesus Christ to form a church. And that just like Israel, they are to be a royal priesthood on display. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a special treasure and possession to show forth, to body forth my wisdom to the world. These are astonishing claims, I think. That the church, a gathering just like this, is to display God's purposes and wisdom to the world. That the very heavenly authorities look upon the church and say, wow, how wise is God? What does that mean? What does this mean for us? Well, as Baptists, and whether you hold that term or not, I'm I'm not too concerned, We have a long heritage of thinking creatively and radically even about how we might go about displaying God's wisdom in the world. Baptists haven't held very many different views about the Trinity or Christ or salvation or really anything that the the faith that most Christians hold. But what we have emphasized is something about the church. Early Baptists drew on this theme of covenant, that God had covenanted with us to make for God a new community of people. The vertical covenant between God and God's community. But as time went on, Baptists, amidst their life together, began to describe covenant in a horizontal sense as well, as one which belongs to church members, church whānau. They took to heart Jesus' words, that as I have loved you, you must also love one another. And so just as God calls a church together in Jesus Christ, binding God's self to us, the church also binds itself to one another, to the people within it. For Baptists, we've said that God's wisdom is best displayed through our quality of life together in the context of covenant. And so the first thing I want us to think about living together as God's people is that our relationships with one another as a community matter. Community, um, as Andrew Pickard often likes to say, is a lovely aerosol word. We like to spray it around in a room and it smells really good, but quickly just dissipates in the air. We often tend to think about community and relationship, our quality of life together as a tool to kind of be used, as a utility for us to get something else. Our young people are leaving the church, we might say. Well, young adults love community, so we'll, we'll bring them in and make sure they stick around. Another temptation go, we really want to grow on Sundays. People are hungry for authentic community, so we'll use it to bring people into our fold. The shift in thinking here is subtle, though. These are two desires for good things. But when we end up using community as a tool for something else, we forget that our displayed life together shows God's wisdom to the world. 
What if rather than being a tool to be manipulated or used, things which often, by the way, make for bad relationships, we understand community as being in deep, lasting relationships that are central to our call as a people together. You know, one way to summarize the teachings of the New Testament would be like this. Learn to behave better in the company of one another. Whether it was the Corinthians infidelity, the Romans ethnic segregation, Pergamum's infatuation with false prophets, or the Laodiceans lukewarmness, we would do well to stop romanticizing the early church. They often struggled with their new identity as God's people in Jesus Christ. And much of the apostles' teaching was to help them live into the miracle that they already were. In light of this good news that sins are forgiven, death is defeated, there's a new life on offer. And it's a life lived in deep, lasting relationship with those who have also been offered new life in Jesus Christ. The biblical church had to learn to live as God's community with one another. And the same, of course, is true for Israel in the Old Testament, called to be God's very own people. As God says to the covenant at Sinai, you are called to live as a community and people together. And Israel was often terrible at it, right? Death, war, betrayal, idolatry, you name it, the people of God fall quite short of their calling. But their relationships together, their intimate life with one another, displayed God's wisdom to the world. It's fundamental to who they were as a people, as a chosen nation. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer defines it, and I think that'll be up on the screen, love is simply the will to enter into and keep community with one another. Our relationships matter a lot, I think, at least. And as Baptists, we've emphasized and believe that in the midst of these close covenantal relationships, Jesus himself was present, displaying God's wisdom to the world. As Baptist and as any Christian, we choose to live together as the church by being deeply committed relationally. And so I want us to reflect. Here are some questions for us to chat about. Um, just with the people around you. What is a covenant, is the first one. What is another place that people often make covenants or vows to one another, hint, hint. Um, and what do these commitments often entail? The second question I want you to reflect on. Um, should just be the next slide over. Um, I'll read it here, hopefully it'll come up. What makes a good relationship? What characterizes any healthy relationship? And the third, third question, how does someone cultivate such a relationship? What are some of the things you actually need to do? So what is a covenant? What is a good relationship? And how do you cultivate those things? Make sense? We'll have, yeah, we've got a bit of time to chat to person to next to you in a group or just in pairs, and then I'd love to hear a little bit of your ideas for that. Uh, anyone else? Or, uh. <laughs> uh, we, we kind of mostly stuck on question one. Yeah. So is this helpful? Is this helpful to begin to imagine our relationships as a covenant? 
you know, as a, as a marriage even, an intimate, intimate thing. Um, yeah. Is there any, any last burning thing to share? Well, I'm, I'm glad you raised that question of, of practices, because I have something to share. Um, thank you, yeah. Um, I, have, I have four things I think we could begin to do to cultivate our relationships a bit better. Um, acknowledging it's costly and acknowledging it's difficult. Eat together is one, which I think is on the next slide. E, much of Jesus' own life and ministry was spent around tables and in homes. That story we heard before about what I would call the first church service, um, the disciples on the Emmaus Road, it was when they ate with Jesus, when they broke bread, that they finally clicked for them who they were dining with. Well, who's a fellow church member that you could share a meal with in the coming week? Um, how might we, amidst all the busyness and, and chaos that life entails, become communities who display God's wisdom in the home? and the act of breaking bread and simple hospitality. I think eating together is a profound way in which we cultivate relationships. So if we think about this again as a marriage and a family, um, eating together is a really part of being a family, right? I'd also think that every family knows we need to fight well. Eating together and fighting well, I think are probably like two core things of being a healthy family. <laughs> Um, if we don't do conflict well, either by avoiding it or going and having it far too often in unhelpful ways, our relationships together are not going to flourish and thrive. And let us confess that we often act poorly with each other in the church. We attack or tear down and sometimes just behave badly when things are going wrong. Rather than entering the costly task of fighting well together, and seeking reconciliation. This is not easy, okay? Obviously. Um, but it is fundamental for a healthy life together. Another thing I'd like to think about, um, and I'd love to reflect on these as we come in the following weeks as well, is how we could interact in the gaps. What I mean by that is that much of our modern church life is quite programmed and structured, uh, contractual, I think is a pretty good way to think about it. Yet relationships are often formed in the little moments between something else, right? Um, in casual conversations in the car or in cups of tea shared after the service, these are the moments in the gaps, I think, in which relationships really form. So if our relationships together are an end of themselves, what types of spaces and environments do we need to foster this type of informal community? And the fourth one, which I think is my biggest challenge for you, is to live close by. Here's one of the most simple and profound way to get to know someone better. Proximity. My own current church community, Margaret Baptist, um, we're quite small. We were the 20, 20 people in South Auckland gathering in a shabby building um, that I spoke about. And I live just next door and can walk to pretty much most of my fellow members' his house. The difference in cultivating community and relationships when you are five minutes away compared to 15 is remarkable. And this might be different in different contexts, I'll, I'll acknowledge. But what would it look like if God's wisdom was displayed in our local churches as living as productive neighbors with one another? Building not just healthy suburbs or cities, but streets and cul-de-sacs. This local sense of life together.
Do we want to take 30 seconds to maybe reflect on those as well? Um, just in the same groups you were before. What are these practices might offer us? And, and, and um, to get really practical, what, what are some of the ways you could see in your own life you could open yourself up to your fellow member sitting next to you? Sound good? Go ahead. Over a cup of tea. Um, and I'm keen, I'm keen for us to pick up this conversation as we th journey for a couple or a few weeks together. And so um, I want to hear from you next week. Fair warning up front about if you're experiencing or, or um, want to want to think about some of these things. To be a locus of God's wisdom is a remarkable but frankly frightening gift. But its opportunities, its possibilities, I think, are exciting, enticing, and inviting. Dallas Willard once offered a profound challenge when he wrote, our local assemblies must become academies of life as it was meant to be. Our local assemblies, our local churches, our gathering together must become academies of life as it was meant to be. May in, in Jesus' name it be so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, loving Savior, through the body you offer us to share and the spirit who brings dead things to life, may our local assemblies as a church become academies of life as it was meant to be, lived in deep, loving commitment to each other and in deep, loving commitment to you. Amen. I have the privilege of sending us off this morning, um, and I wanted to pray a benediction together. There's going to be some words on the screen, and you're going to be reading the bold. Um, these first ones are in bold, if you can't see, so we'll do them together. Um, and the next ones, I'll read the first line, and you guys read the second. So we'll get through it. Let's pray. King Jesus, head of our church, we pray together in your spirit that you would bind us closely together for the sake of your good news. In our eating and drinking, may God's wisdom be displayed in our church. In our coming and going, may God's wisdom be displayed in our church. In our relationships inside and out, may God's wisdom be displayed in our church. In our conflicts and frustrations with each other, In our leadership with their strengths and their humanity. May God's wisdom be displayed in our church. In all our people, young and old. May God's wisdom be displayed in our church. To display Christ's glory to all the world. May God's wisdom be displayed in our church. And all of God's people said, Amen. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.